True or false? All political opponents hate each other. If we go by what we see on TV or in the news, we might tend to answer true because it seems like here's two groups that are just at odds on every last point and emphatically one another's enemies. But in reality, we know that the answer is false because there are many relationships behind the scenes that we don't know about and sometimes people are very different when they're one-on-one than they're in this public sort of capacity representing their side of a thing. What do we learn from the way that Jesus teaches Nicodemus in John 3? Here's what I would say we learn. When teaching a teacher, illustrate well without assuming. When teaching a teacher, illustrate well without assuming. The first part of that, I think, we see in verses 1 and 2, and that is don't assume someone's beliefs based on their group. Don't assume someone's beliefs based on his group. Nicodemus is an unlikely prospect for someone who's going to follow after Jesus. He's a Pharisee, it says, in verse 1. Paul describes the ideas of the Pharisees in Philippians chapter 3. In this way, his own experience, which probably paralleled that to some degree of Nicodemus, Paul said, um, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. And so to the extent that Nicodemus, a fellow Pharisee, shared the same attitude of valuing God's law. We know the law. We know all the details of the law. We've been so concerned about the law that we've added all of these traditions to the law because we don't want to break the law. Nicodemus is someone who is, we would expect, humanly speaking, going to sort of hold the party line, going to um, be very focused on all of these traditions, going to be unwilling to hear Jesus' message to the extent that it contradicts the goals and objectives and beliefs of the Pharisees. He's a Pharisee, but he's not just a Pharisee because there were Pharisees who weren't in charge of things. They were Pharisees who were scribes. They were responsible for making copies of God's law and things like that, but they were not in and of themselves in charge of God's people. But he was a ruler of the Jews. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. We know this not only from verse 1, but in case we're uncertain of it, John chapter 7, verses 50 and 51 describe him in this way, Nicodemus. He who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arrives out of Galilee. And this was a discussion of the officers, the chief priests, at the end of John chapter 7. He is a man who has lots to lose if he becomes a disciple. Because his position, to the extent that the rest of the Pharisees, and particularly the rest of the Sanhedrin, except for perhaps Joseph of Arimathea, uh, maybe Gamaliel, later Paul, but not Paul at this point, there's maybe three or four that in the course of time God saves out of that council of 70 that we know of recorded in Scripture. The vast majority of them, or at least the most outspoken influential ones of them, are very opposed to Jesus. And so the official position of the group of the Pharisees is no to Jesus. We oppose Jesus. 
uh, and the um, the reality for Nicodemus himself is he has much to lose if he turns and follows Jesus. And yet, unlike the other rulers, he's an unlikely prospect, but unlike the other rulers, he comes to talk to Jesus directly. At least as far as we know, at least as far as recorded in Scripture, the other ones don't come and talk to Jesus directly. They make up their minds about him. They go on their way. He comes by night. Some people have made a big deal of this. He's trying to hide the fact that he's meeting with Jesus. Um, it's possible that he came in an official capacity to investigate the things that Jesus was saying. It's possible that he did it at night because they didn't want to create a disturbance. Maybe not so much because he was afraid of the other Pharisees, but he didn't want to lead the people astray until he knew what was going on. We don't know his reasons for coming at night, but he comes at night. He's willing to learn, which again is an attitude that we wouldn't expect to see based on the response of the other Pharisees. Many of them are saying, here's what we know. Here's what is the way. We're not going to listen to anything else. But Nicodemus has the humility when he approaches Jesus to come and say, Rabbi, teacher, you teach me because we know that you've come from God. This is in contrast to the arrogance and closed-mindedness of the other Pharisees. So as we look at these first two verses, I think it's important to remember that rarely does every member of a group think exactly the same. It's easy when we describe the Jewish religious leaders to think of them all as scheming, murderous hypocrites. And that is where most of them prove themselves to be by the point that they murder Jesus and by the point at which they murder Stephen and some of these other followers of Jesus. But I think two factors relate to this. One of them is that there is a progression of their opposition. At first, they think that Jesus is sort of a local phenomenon that's going to go away and they don't see any significant threat in Jerusalem to their position if there's this little disturbance happening in Galilee where disturbances happened all the time is probably the way they would have looked at it. So there is a progression, but when Jesus comes down to Jerusalem, their level of opposition and antagonism escalates. And so there is a progression in their opposition from it's a problem that's going to sort itself out in this rural area, we don't care much about it, to it's a problem here and we're going to kill him before it goes any further. The other part is that there are those who are genuinely curious. We see here Nicodemus. We see Joseph of Arimathea. We see Gamaliel's words to the council when the question of Stephen comes up. We see all of these different things coming along in which there are some people who seem genuinely curious about the work that God is doing through Jesus. Could he be the Messiah? And so I think these things are important to remember. Uh, consider today the public appearance of various politicians versus their personal interactions. They might scream at each other in public, but in private, many of them view each other as colleagues and fellow human beings. So too, the public perspective on the politicians of Jesus' day was their united opposition to Jesus, but that arises over time, and it's not a united a thing as we might initially suspect. What does this have to do with evangelism? If you or I ask someone's religious background and that person gives us a word that's one of those key words that we're listening to, I'm Muslim, I'm Jewish, I'm a Jehovah's Witness, any number of answers different from what we would want to be in our label, it's easy to put that person in a box and assume you know everything there is to know about where that person's at spiritually before God. And I would just point out to you that I've had conversations with people from the Eastern Orthodox Church who seem to have been moving toward belief in faith 
alone, not faith plus works for salvation. I've had conversations with Catholics who, though they are part of a false church, seem to genuinely love Jesus. With Mormons who saw in their faith a place for family and a genuine desire to follow God. That doesn't mean that we forget the exclusive nature of the gospel. There is one way to God through Jesus who is God. And to the extent that any religion officially or in the beliefs of any of its members denies that core truth, it's a false religion. But we do need to talk to people as fellow human beings, not as political opponents with whom we have no common ground. So when someone says, I'm a fill-in-the-blank, it's easy to say, well, I remember back to this book I read on world religion, so that means you believe this, this, and this, and that means you're going to have this, this, and this objection, and that means there's no possible way that you have a relationship with God because you're a part of this church that teaches these things that are false. The reality is there are people who are parts uh, connected with churches that officially teach false things because they don't know where else to go. Or because they do have a relationship with God, but there are certain points that they're still learning and figuring out. Uh, let me just give you a notable example of this. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, I don't think most of us would say, was an unbeliever. He was very devoted to God, preached a lot of sermons, had a lot of people saved under his ministry. But he believed some things about evolution, which was a popular trend in his day, that we take a step back and we say, well, I don't know if a Christian could actually believe and agree with those things. You know, Can we have a gap theory in which there's death before sin comes into the world, in which there's this whole civilization that's lost? He lives in a time in which he's trying to make sense of the opposition of evolution to God's word and the reality of scripture and all of those sorts of things. And so he arrives at, in looking back on it, what seems to be a wrong conclusion but that didn't necessarily mean that he was an unbeliever, right? And so I think we have to be careful here. We should not compromise the gospel. But there is, I think, a difference in the way that we evaluate public figures who should know better. Like, I think there's a case to be made for somebody who says, let's have an ecumenical collaboration between all of these groups that disagree on theology if that person is someone who is well acquainted with what all of those groups teach. There's a difference between that and the average person who just shows up to the weekly gathering of whatever their church kind of group is who probably hasn't thought about a bunch of the points of theology or, or realized that this and that contradict each other. So how can this church teach both things? My point is simply to say, if Nicodemus was willing to ask questions about Jesus, and if Nicodemus was an exception to the general pattern of the Pharisees in their response to Jesus, in their beliefs about God and all those sorts of things, we need to be careful not to immediately write off people that we encounter because their label is this group that, that, as an official group, contradicts what the Bible teaches. We can learn not only from what we see about Nicodemus, but also the way that Jesus responds to him. Notice the simple yet thought-provoking illustrations Jesus confronts Nicodemus with. This is a really important point, I think, as well, to use simple but stirring illustrations to point to the gospel, because I think if you and I were to encounter someone like Nicodemus, we would feel like we have to match him academics for academics, right? I encountered this at different points when I was at the hospital uh, talking to different doctors about things related to Maggie or to Kelly. 
um, for that matter, occasionally even things that I was trying to get figured out. There are certain ones who basically would assume if you don't know our lingo, lingo, then you're dumb and you don't have any place to disagree with what we say you should do. And so there were certain ones that I found responded better to, you know, you start talking about a particular thing and you say, all right, so here's this blood marker and it usually is associated with this, so are we willing to take this course of action because this hasn't kicked in yet and here's all of the specific medical terms to sort of back that up. If, if you talk to certain people in that way, like here's an infectious disease doctor, you say, all right, so the blood level for this hasn't, the, the fever is below this threshold, and the blood level that marks these particular things, this is negative, this is negative, this is negative, we don't need to give an antibiotic yet, because the antibiotic's going to have this effect on kidneys, which is worse than the possibility of the fever rising and so forth. Maybe we need to do it in a day, but we don't need to do it today. Certain ones responded well to that kind of thing. But I found that a lot of them would often respond just simply to a earnest plea to say, think about what's going on. Even if you didn't know anything about all the different terminology and the exact things, if you just came and said, here's this person I love and care about, here's what I'm trying to accomplish, would you please think about this? Fervency and simplicity and honesty go a really long way in our conversations with people in a way that we don't have to have all of the answers and all of the questions figured out and all of their possible objections and all those things. Because the reality is, going back to the example of various world religions, if you decided to be an expert in world religions, are you going to succeed? No, because not only do you have to know what you believe, but you have to know all of the things that they believe of which there have been, in many cases, hundreds if not thousands of different books and pamphlets and articles and blog posts and videos and all those different things produced, you, don't, you simply don't have the time to be an expert in every last nuance of every other belief in the world. But what God calls you to do is to know Jesus and your walk with him and point people to that. And so instead of trying to match Nicodemus with academic answers. Here's this quote from Isaiah, and here's how it fit with what Rabbi so-and-so said. Here's this quote from Zechariah, and how it fits with Rabbi so-and-so said. And here's how I'm the fulfillment of those things. Ironically, though we do see some of the apostles appealing to the Old Testament, Jesus talking to the guy who theoretically would have been impressed by Jesus' knowledge of the Old Testament. Why do I say Jesus had knowledge of the Old Testament? When Jesus is 12 years old, He's in the temple and he's teaching the religious leaders and they're amazed by his knowledge of God. So he had the capacity to do that. He doesn't go there. Where does he go? Nicodemus, you need to be a baby again. Here's this great teacher, knows all these things, all this stuff about God's law, and he says, Nicodemus, you need to be like a baby again. Jesus says, you must be born again. So even though he comes to Jesus as a spiritual teacher, Nicodemus is thinking in earthly terms. How do we know this? Verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? He can't get into his mother's womb again a second time. Practically, he doesn't fit. Secondarily, if Nicodemus is as old as it seems he is in this passage, his mom's probably dead at this point. So this is a physical impossibility, Jesus. Jesus explains that there's two kinds of birth, born of water and born of the Spirit. 
And that parallels verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. This is not the same kind of birth you already had happen, Nicodemus. You were born once as a, as a baby from your mother. I'm not talking about that kind of birth. I'm talking about a birth by God's spirit, by God's power. So he says, don't be amazed by this. He illustrates it by describing the wind. Have you seen the wind? Yes. Do you know what it is? Well, yeah, I mean, everybody knows what the wind is. Explain to me how it works. I don't know. Where is it right now? I don't know. Can you see it? No. So too with God's power. Here's something that you're not going to necessarily comprehend, but what you need is God's invisible supernatural power giving you birth that's unlike the first birth that you experienced, but that in the same way that you could have a tornado or a whirlwind or something like that where you see the power of the wind accomplishing mighty things, so too God's power that you can't see, don't really understand, all those sorts of things, you just accept it as a simple fact. So going back to the idea of being born again, Nicodemus, we need to come to God like a little baby. Does a baby or a toddler, I know they ask the question why all the time, but in reality, they tend to be less concerned with the how everything fits together and more just curious about the thing or excited about the thing, right? So if you have a little kid who's never seen snow, do they want to know that the fact that snow comes is because water droplets crystallize on particles of dust in the air and then sort of rain down in a solid form? Not really. They just want to, what is this? What's the name of it? It's snow. What do we do? We go enjoy it, right? In the same way, God is saying to Nicodemus, this is not going to fit into a category of natural explanation. And your job is not to understand God comprehensively and completely, but to submit to the fact that the power of his spirit is what's going to give you this new spiritual life. And until you come to that point of humility and belief and all of those sorts of things, you can't be a part of God's kingdom. All of the things that you have thought put you in a good spot with God, all of your knowledge, all of your rituals, all of your uprightness, that doesn't help you. What's going to help you is this new spiritual birth that God wants to give you. And you may not understand. You probably will never fully understand how it works. But it's something that you need to accept and needs to be a part of your life. Often we tell people, you must be born again. How many of you have ever done that? You need to be born again, okay? I was reflecting on this. I think when we use that phrase, we think that we're following Jesus' example. And I'm not saying it's sinful to say the phrase, you need to be born again. But here's what I would urge you to think about, because I was thinking about this a lot this week. Jesus is telling a focused-on-this-earth religious leader he doesn't have all the answers. In other words, stop focusing on fitting God's work into your understanding, but instead submit to God's power and giving you new life. So when we tell people you must be born again, I would argue that maybe, depending on the person and depending on the circumstance, we might want to use a different phrase. 
and that perhaps we're closer to the sense of what Jesus is trying to accomplish with Nicodemus when we say to people something like, you can't earn your way to God. This is not a hill to die on. This is not a gospel truth kind of point. But this is a, what was Jesus trying to accomplish when he said this phrase? What are we trying to accomplish when we say the phrase? Are they the same thing? If Jesus was saying, you must be born again and essentially set aside all of your training, all of your supposed knowledge, all of your supposed position, and come to God like an infant, like a little child, to Nicodemus as a ruler, as an authority, as a, someone who is respected, that is the phrase that Nicodemus needed to hear. It might not be the phrase that the person you're talking to needs to hear. But you have to get them to that same point of recognizing their need of dependence and trust on God. Just something to think about. Jesus gives a second illustration when Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus gets to, verse 14, the sun must be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. So he's going to give him an illustration from the history of Israel. But it's going to be a simple illustration, one that... Um, if you are going to pick a really remarkable thing to discuss with someone as a point of theology from the Old Testament, it's probably not one of the stories where the Israelites failed and God had to correct them and here's how he delivered them. It might be one of these obscure phrases that David gives, right? Uh, think about Jesus' words to the crowds. He said, if David uh, speaks of his... Uh, his heir is, says to him, my Lord, like Jesus does that with the crowds, which is interesting because the crowds are the ones who are probably going to know the least about that phrase. But when he talks to the Pharisee, he doesn't bring up that point, which would have been this profound mystery. He's like, let me tell you a story. Remember back that time in Israel's history? Before he gets there, he says a few other things. Jesus confronts Nicodemus's ignorance. Are you the teacher of Israel and don't understand these things? Nicodemus is coming with a measure of humility and saying, Rabbi, teach me. And Jesus is saying, I think to some degree, you don't know how much you don't know. And sometimes I think if we see someone in a position of authority, we might be hesitant to be that direct. Who am I to tell this person they don't know what they're talking about? And I'm not saying we're Jesus. I'm not saying we would do it perfectly. But it is fascinating that Jesus directly confronts Nicodemus's ignorance and says, hey, if we've talked to you about things that we know that are clear and, and just earthly things using this illustration of birth, and you say, I don't get it, we can't get to all the mysterious things until you get this part. Kind of like the author of Hebrews says, you know, it would be good if we were able to teach these things and the other things, but we have to keep going back to the basics until you get the basics and, and you understand those things. We should never feel like we've moved beyond the basics or that people don't need to hear them, however intelligent or studied or so forth they might seem to be. Jesus then explains the mystery of the Messiah in verses 13 and 14. Notice this contrast here. No one has ascended into heaven... But he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So you can't get up there, God came down. And then as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. God bent low, 
the Messiah will be lifted up to accomplish the salvation of people who couldn't reach God on their own. He came down from heaven because no one could come up into God's presence. He came down to be lifted up in death, bringing eternal life, verse 15, to those who believe. So when talking to people who appear to be experts, sometimes we're intimidated. But going back to Jesus' first illustration, if they're unwilling to approach things simply like a child, they may not get the more important truths at all. And often, I would add, those things tend to be a distraction. Uh, I've told you before, there was a friend of mine I was having a conversation with online. I was talking to him about Jesus and the gospel. He says, what about ghosts? I lived in this house in Germany that was haunted. The idea of the supernatural is intriguing to people. And the fact of angels and demons being a real thing is not something we couldn't talk about. But in that moment, it's not really the point that he needs to hear. Because whether or not the house was haunted has no bearing on his relationship with God. And the fact that he's bringing that up when I'm saying you need to repent and turn to Jesus means that he's not ready to do that. He's trying to distract and turn to this other thing. And so sometimes we think the most important questions to answer are the really obscure things that people throw up at you when you're talking to them about Jesus. If they don't get the basic truth, there's a God, you're a sinner, the only way is Jesus... You could talk to them all day long about angels and demons and end times and where did this thing come from? What about dinosaurs? What about whatever? They're still not going to believe. The latest one is probably aliens. I know dinosaurs was my thing when I was a kid. Now everybody's on about aliens, right? Everybody wants to talk about that. Not well, a lot of people anyways. Doesn't matter if aliens exist. Doesn't matter what they are. If it becomes a distraction away from the basic reality of who God is and who you are and what needs to be done about it, we talk all day long about those things. That person's still condemned to hell and you haven't accomplished anything in all that conversation. Jesus explaining about the sun coming down and being lifted up reminds us of truths at the core of the gospel. Nicodemus and the rest of the Pharisees seem to have been trying to reach God on their own. Right? How did man do that in the Old Testament? We're going to build the Tower of Babel. God knocks it down, confuses the languages, it falls apart over the course of time. All throughout history, mankind has tried to reach God. Jesus said, you can't, so God came down to you. He says, very shortly, God is going to be lifted back up in the crucifixion, in this parallel to the story where Moses makes something to, to the people might have seemed like a kind of an idol, And yet it was a picture of God's redemption that Jesus is going to allude to several thousand years later in talking to Nicodemus as an illustration of God providing salvation from deadly destruction to those who believe. Were the people supposed to worship the snake? No. When they worship it later on, I think it's Joshua smashes it and throws it out in the garbage. But were they supposed to look on this symbol of God's presence in faith? Yes, and then they would receive God's redemption and forgiveness. In the same way, Jesus was going to be lifted up, drawing all men, Jews and Gentiles alike, to himself as the only way of salvation before God. 
Man would lift Jesus up in death, fulfilling this type in the Old Testament, and yet that act of murder would accomplish salvation in the mystery that Acts 2 and other passages describe. This reveals the wisdom of God that supersedes man's wisdom, and it points to our need to humble ourselves before God instead of coming as those who have it all figured out. Jesus gives a third illustration about light and darkness in the last few verses here of John 3, verses 16 through 21. As they conclude their conversation, Jesus explains the nature of God's love for the world. Sometimes we take this verse as God so loved the world, he just couldn't do without it, so he sent Jesus. And the emphasis is not on the so, it's God so loved the world. It's not on the so, but it's this, this manner. This is how God loved the world. He sent his son. It's not God loved you because you. It's God loved because him, so he sent Jesus. The manner of the love, God's sending of his son, is the nature of it that he sent the son not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Why? God doesn't have to judge unbelievers through the Son at this point in time because they've already been judged for unbelief. Paul and Jesus and others point out the fact that there is a day coming when the Son is going to return and carry out the judgment upon the earth. But in his coming here, Jesus comes to offer salvation to the world, to those who are already judged and don't need to be judged any further because of their unbelief. Verse 18. What is the judgment? Now the illustration, light and darkness. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Sarah gives me a hard time for this, but I'm not a huge fan of, you know, 6 a.m. in the morning and all the lights getting flipped on in the bedroom when you're waking up. I don't know how everybody else feels about that. And so we go back and forth, and I will admit the reason that that feels shocking to me probably has to do with things from my childhood. My mom had allergies, so we didn't really open the windows, and we had you know these big shrubs full of spiders and bugs because everybody had those in the 80s and 90s, right? So we couldn't open the windows. There wasn't a ton of light getting in my bedroom. So it didn't bother me the way it bothers some people if there's not sunlight coming in through the window. But to the extent that the sun comes in and our response is to shy away from the light... When in reality, you and I need sunlight for any number of things for our health and because light is good and because it's God's beautiful creation, all those sorts of things, there's something wrong in that response. Jesus is saying the same kind of thing. When the light comes and people are like, no, we're going to go hide in the shadow over in the corner, there's a problem. Because the light comes so that you would step into the light and dwell in the light. There's a ton of illustrations about this in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. And also 1 Thessalonians and other places as well. But the light has come, you're supposed to be drawn to the light, right? So be like a moth, not like a cockroach, right? You're supposed to be like a moth, not like a cockroach. When the light comes, you're supposed to be drawn to it. Certain things run away, certain things come toward. Jesus is saying to the extent that you run away from the light, it shows that there's a problem. Everyone who does evil, well, first of all, um, we'll start with those who do, to do evil, verse 19. Men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. If I'm doing wrong 
and the light shows what I'm doing, I don't want more light because that's going to show all the wrong I've been doing and I don't want to give up the wrong to come to the light. Verse 20, everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. If you are sneaking through the house trying to do something, you don't want somebody to come turn on the light. It could be something silly like you're eating chocolate chips or it could be something really bad like you're trying to steal from someone. But either scenario, you don't want the light flipped on because it shows what you're doing. You don't want people to catch you. Jesus is saying when, Jesus, when, the, when the light from God comes into the world, if you run away from it, it shows that you're a sinner. You're living in your sin. You're loving that sin. Everyone who does evil hates the light, doesn't come to the light for fear his deeds will be exposed. Who are those who are not judged? He who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested, made clear, shown as having been wrought in or produced by or made possible by God. Those who have eternal life are not judged because they believe in Jesus, so they practice the truth and want to be near Jesus to gain approval and not condemnation. I think many times when I've read this passage, I've sort of thought, well, verse 36 is Jesus' words, but it's not. It's actually John the Baptist's words. But they correlate with what Jesus has just said in verses 16 through 21. What is this idea of light and truth? Those who have salvation want to be near the Savior. Salvation is not about escaping hell. It's about gaining Jesus. The place where we end up in God's presence is not important. It's the fact of God's presence being there. And so when it comes to our presentation of the gospel, if we illustrate it the way that Jesus illustrated it to Nicodemus, here's the light. You're in darkness. Why would you want to stay in darkness? Because the light shows something about you that you don't want to admit. If you come to the light just for a second to get something and then to run back to the darkness, you have no part with the light. And sometimes when we've presented the gospel, we've said that you can be like the cockroach, which will run into the light because there's a morsel of food on the floor, and then it runs back into the darkness. Does it love the light? No, it wants the food. There are many people who have come to God under a false profession because they wanted heaven, but they didn't want God. So Jesus' sobering warning about the you never knew me in another passage is to the people who say, well, I came to you this one time to get this one thing, so now I belong with you. And Jesus is saying, if you don't stay in the light, you're not part of the light, you have no place with the light. What Nicodemus needed to hear was not some really profound thing, some really obscure point of theology. What he needed to hear were simple, direct illustrations of the truth about the kingdom of God, the nature of the Messiah, and the need for repentance. And that's exactly what Jesus gives to him. So when you and I meet people, we shouldn't assume that we know everything about them based on their group or label. Should we ask questions to try to understand where someone's coming from? Absolutely, right? But it would be easy for us to just ask a couple of questions. Hey, what's your church background? Okay, my church background is that I'm 
uh, Presbyterian. My church background is that I'm Unitarian. My church background is that I'm whatever. Okay, now I know where you're at. So now here's the next thing. We're just going to go down through the list of all the things that we say to someone from that particular group. This person could have a very loose connection to that religious group. We need to keep asking more questions to understand where that person's coming from. And then when it comes time to talk to that person, while the important truth to talk to someone from a group that denies that Jesus is God is the fact that Jesus is God, sometimes the starting place is not to jump on that one thing. We need to get there. But sometimes the starting place is just to say, here's the simple fact of the gospel. And the person is like, I want to believe that. Okay, great. Do you recognize that this means that the only way that this can be possible is because Jesus is God? Then we get there, right? But in reality, sometimes there's really basic truths about God someone might not understand, and we don't have any kind of a foundation to talk about the, and now you need to pray a prayer and trust in me. Uh, trust in Jesus, right? Because that's, I think, what sometimes in the past evangelism has tended to be because we want to have a big record of people who've trusted Jesus, because we feel like we're really busy, we don't have time for more involved discussion over the course of days or weeks or months. And sometimes we don't, but oftentimes we do. There are these basic truths, simple illustrations, things about God that people need to hear. And that person might throw up some big objection. Well, so-and-so, this prophet said this thing, and such-and-such, such, this book has this idea. And we feel like, oh no, I can't speak the gospel this person anymore because I don't know the answer to that really obscure thing they just brought up. If Jesus can talk to Nicodemus, who of all people in Israel should have had the answers and say, hey, let's go back to these really basic truths, it's perfectly legitimate for you and I to have that same sort of response. Here's really basic truths about God. I know you want to argue about this thing over here. Here's really basic truths about God. If you don't accept those, it doesn't matter what we talk about with this. Moving past the assumptions we might have about people, we need to confront unbelief with stirring illustrations so that those people that we encounter desire Jesus and want to come to him humbly and submit to him the way the Bible says they need to. Because for so many people, almost everybody, I would argue, our problem is we think there's something that we can bring to God. So if we engage people on that level, really profound thought of philosophy or theology, my profound thought of philosophy and theology, we're arguing about these things in a sort of way where we think, if I just persuade you to believe this, then you're going to agree with me and then you're going to be saved. The reality is nobody's going to be saved no matter how much they understand about the truth about God because the, the, the creatures that know the most truth about God and have no hope of salvation are Satan and his demons and they could quote scripture all day long and it makes no difference in their lives. And so your ability to answer people with philosophy or theology is not at all the most important thing about your witnessing to them. What is most important is you have a relationship with God and you can illustrate it in simple ways to people who want to be like all of these really extensive academic kind of discussions. Is there a place for apologetics that involves answering those objections? Yes. But I would argue that the people like Stephen, like Paul, like Apollos, who are skilled in doing that, 
God used their pre-existing familiarity with certain things like the truth of the Old Testament as a basis for them being equipped to do that, more so than the moment they trusted Jesus. He's like, okay, go study up on all these things so you can answer these questions. Here's what I mean by that. Paul was an expert in the law for 20, 30 years before he goes out and becomes a Christian, right? Probably at least 20. He's probably in his 40s when he becomes a believer. God draws on that background to help him answer the objections about Christianity. I'm not saying if you're 60 and you're like, I want to do apologetics that it's too late. I'm just saying the path that God's going to take you down is more likely going to be that you're having conversations with everyday people about everyday things. And on the basis of Jesus in John 3, that is a perfectly legitimate approach to evangelism. Let's say you have an academic background and you've studied all these different religions and all these sorts of things and God puts you in a position where you're going to write books and engage people from various philosophies. Great. And maybe some people jump from one group to the other and that's fine, but we shouldn't think that God's goal is that all of us go from the category of everyday conversations about everyday things about God with everyday people to really profound conversations about really intricate details and really obscure points of philosophy because that's not the approach Jesus had with Nicodemus. Jesus says, I could write you off because you're a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, but I'm not going to. I'm going to talk to you. And talking to you, I'm not going to appeal to all these things you think you know. I'm going to say, look, forget about all that. Here's really basic truth about God that you need to humbly submit to. So if we're saying what's a pattern for our evangelism, when teaching a teacher or anybody else who thinks they have all the answers... I don't think God calls us to engage with them on that same level. I think he says, go back to the basic truths about who God is and about the gospel and about their need of repentance and let the Spirit do the work. Because it's not going to be you and I arguing them into heaven. No matter how much we know, and a lot of times we don't know, it's going to be us just faithfully saying, here's who Jesus is and here's how you need to turn to him. And that person may not do it in that moment. But God uses that encounter and the next encounter and the next encounter after that to bring somebody to salvation. So don't be ashamed if your conversations with people about the gospel are, here's Jesus, here's what he's done for me, and you need to follow him. Because that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this example of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus and the principles that we can learn from it and the encouragement that we can find. Help us to be faithful not to necessarily be those that you have not called us to be, although we should always be learning and growing, but simply to be those that you have saved, faithfully serving you and telling others about you. We pray that you give us strength in this task. We pray that as with fellow believers, we would not move past the basic truths of, of the gospel, your amazing grace, the mercy that you have shown to us, but that we would continue to rejoice in those with one another even as we press on to understand more truths about who you are. We can never explore the depths of who you are, but we also do not move past the first things that we learn when we first begin to trust you. And so we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.